This week on the Camera Journal Podcast, we are jumping back in after a brief break. My move is done, and we're ready to talk about impeachment proceedings being formalized, a little bit of pop culture, because it actually has kind of been a slow news couple of weeks. And we're going to catch up on the latest in the 2020 race and a little bit more with the Ukraine scandal, which just seems to have daily bombshells. Welcome back, everyone. It's the Cameron Journal Podcast. This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. It's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cameron Journal Podcast. My name is Cameron Cowan. I host the podcast. We're already coughing this week. Fun times. And uh, we are... Focusing this week on the 2020 presidential race, um, the formalization of the impeachment process, and a couple other of stories, including off-off-year elections that happened um, this week. So on Tuesday, the first Tuesday after the first Monday, which this week was November the 5th, um... A couple, a handful of states will, just to bring greater attention to them, have governor and state legislative assembly um, uh, elections on years when federal offices are not up. Two such states are Kentucky and Virginia. Now, this week, some pretty big things happened in Kentucky and Virginia. The first one was that Virginia, the state assembly, went entirely blue. So Virginia, they had flipped the House a couple years ago. They did not flip the Senate. In 2018, the governor um, became a Democrat. The Democrats won the governorship in 2018. And now they've won the state House and Senate. So Virginia has gone entirely blue. Now, keep in mind, Virginia is a pretty purpley state. So Virginia in national politics can vote kind of either way, Republican or Democrat. And there's there's some very kind of very Democrat areas of Virginia. There's also some very Republican areas of Virginia. It's quite significant that Democrats hold the majority in the state house um, and the state senate in Virginia and the governor's office because it indicates a certain dissatisfaction with Republican leadership at the state level. And it also might be indicative that Virginia might become a more reliably blue state in the future, which could have some wider national political implications. A lot of the cable news media kind of want to make a lot more about the Virginia race than it is. But considering the fact that Democrats have not controlled all of Virginia's government in almost 20 years, it is significant progress in terms of more people are kind of being more okay with the Democrat idea um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to politics. And uh, I think a certain dissatisfaction at some point with Donald Trump. And the, the way in which the Republican Party has wedded itself to Donald Trump is uh, 
deeply troubling. And people will vote with their feet. And now two times in a row, when given the option, people have voted kind of a different way. The other big story, Virginia is kind of done and dusted. Democrats are not, will not be running um, Virginia from the top down. The other kind of big story coming out of that election um, was uh, in Kentucky. That was the Kentucky governor's race. And the... Um, the rate, it was very close. It was so close, in fact, that the Republican candidate and current governor has not conceded yet. Um, <clears throat> as of the f count on Tuesday, there was 5,100 votes favoring the Democrat over the Republican. There are fears that through the court system and whatnot, the Republican Bevin might try to steal the race um, because the vote tally is just so close, which is one of the reasons why it's vitally important when Dem when Democrats run that it's not, it's one of those situations where not only do you have to win, you have to win big. <clears throat> because 5,100 votes, a uh, recount can happen, other things can go wrong. Those of us that live through the Florida election know if a count is super close, um, there can be problems. And it usually doesn't favor Democrats when it does. It usually favors Republicans. So um, the fact, however, that a Democrat governor, at least as of Tuesday's count, pending legal wrangling and, and recounting by the Republican governor, won in deep red Kentucky, that's kind of a bigger story. Virginia has been leaning blue for a while, so it's not too surprising that Democrats are, are, are back in power. In Kentucky, however, electing a Democrat governor means that people in Kentucky are more satisfied with the Democrat idea than the Republican idea. The other kind of significant aspect of that is the fact that the uh, Bevin, the Republican candidate, um, Trump rallied in Kentucky for him uh, just, a, the, I think, the night before the election on Monday night. And he still lost, we hope. And that might mean the magic of a Trump endorsement is breaking. Now, not completely, because Mississippi also had a governor election and the Republican won. Not too surprising, Mississippi's a pretty red state. <clears throat> However, it is, it, it is significant that Kentucky, where also Mitch McConnell is senator from, decided to go with Democrat governor over Republican governor. Um, on the Chuck Todd cast this week, Chuck Todd mentioned the fact that um, the Kentucky governor's race has predicted who wins the presidency every year since 2003. So Republican won in 03, George Bush won in 04. Um, a Democrat won in 07, and <clears throat> a Democrat won in 2008. Um, so... Uh, they're, they're, people are trying to show that the blue wave that happened in 2018 that got the Democrats back in power in the House is is continuing, and that even at the local level, um, the, the blue wave is kind of marching onward, and that perhaps the spell of Trump might be over, and it might spell the end of Trump in 2020. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch, honestly. I think it's a bit of a stretch. Um, I don't necessarily think Trump will be down and out anytime soon. I think there's a still quite good likelihood that he can win in 2020. A lot of people don't want to hear that, but there, that likelihood is still very much there, 
very much present. And it is vitally important to continue to, um, to continue to work, um, work at electing, <clears throat> electing Democrats and articulating the Democrat message and demonstrating what the Republicans have done and what type of shoddy policies that they have wed them to, wed themselves to by going along with Trump. Um, either way, it, the, the narrative has been that Democrats should take hope if you can win a governorship in Kentucky, if you can pick up state house races in Virginia, you're doing very well. There was also a passel of races that um, Democrats kind of picked up across the country um, for other kind of things that were having elections. Um, Off-off year elections are notoriously um, <clears throat> have low turnout because um, unless there's kind of a big top of the ticket race, people sort of don't care. It's important to vote in these elections because it's usually when you vote for your city council people, county commissioners, all sorts of folks. Um, not always. It, it's it's area dependent, but there are lots of places where um, local elections do occur. So there's usually, in most cases, some type of election every year. So please keep up on, on your voting. Um, you can... A quick Google search will give you information about the latest on these on the Kentucky and Virginia um, off off year elections. It it's a something where the story could be good for Democrats, it also could not be good for Democrats, and uh, we'll revisit that as we get into to the craziness going on with the twenty twenty race. So this past couple of weeks, um, I mentioned last week in the last podcast. I would be moving last weekend, um, and so there would not be a podcast last week. And it's a good thing I decided not to schedule, I decided not to do the podcast because um, my move ended up getting delayed by two days. So my whole studio was a complete disaster until a couple days ago when I finally got everything put together. But the decor is done and all this type of thing, so we're back um, up and running. So... It's uh, it's a good place to be. It's nice to have more space. My studio isn't also right by my front door, which was also sandwiched between my bed, which was just really convenient. So, um, yeah. So it's just better, better situation overall. I have a real bedroom again with doors that close, um, and it's nice because my girlfriend's dog actually has room to run around. So, it's general improvement overall. Um. The, uh, there's been plenty of great content on the Cameron Journal, um, blog. If you aren't visiting us at CameronJournal.com, you should be. I post long content on Monday and Friday and videos every Wednesday. And we, I've had all sorts of interesting stuff, including a great video about the story about ex-Muslims. Um, I've also had some interesting, um, we had an, in there was a, there was a video about that. Um, there was also an interesting video. I'm looking at the um, at the last ones here. Oh, Sarah Paulson. We had a video about Sarah Paulson. That was very interesting. Um, I also posted this really great video about Iran's geography and kind of all that sort of thing. Um, I do want to talk more, probably not today because we have some stories to catch up on and I don't <clears throat> want this podcast to go along. Um, I did do a post called How to Make Medicare for All Work in Practical Terms. 
Um, and that one has kind of been getting a lot of attention. So if you want to learn more about Medicare for All and how we can make it work in practical terms, I highly, highly encourage you to, um, to read that. So, um, and then I've also been talking a little bit about some fashion stuff and um, some interesting stuff about the death of dinner parties and how people are hanging out socially. And it's, it's my usual fare. I talk about a little bit of everything observations and the world around us it's not as politically heavy as sometimes this podcast can be um but it's it's always a fun read i try to find really interesting stuff <clears throat> for you guys to read it to uh to read about and interesting things for me to write about that's why it's called the cameron journal um is always looking for interesting observations and social commentary that i find interesting and trying to bring to light the experiences of of real people in in the world around us so like i said cameronjournal.com if you've not been reading so um as a transition before we dive into 2020 um today it just came out the cdc finally figured out what many of us have known for a while that the um substance that has been killing people in the um vaping deaths is vitamin <clears throat> E acetate, which is an ingredient used in THC-based vapes. So, um, if you haven't been following the vaping story, what has happened is a, the last couple months, um, some uh, young people presented to emergency rooms with um, severe breathing and lung issues, um, and about... 20 people have died as a result of those lung issues. And the thing that they had in common is they were all vaping. Now this caused knee-jerk reactions across the country as states like Washington, Michigan, and New York rushed to put temporary bans on vaping, but rather than focusing on the illegal street-bought THC vape cartridges that most of the people who died were um, using, they decided to ban all vape products, which includes nicotine vape products that have been sold um, legally in stores for almost 10 years now. And keeping in mind that when these bans go through, oftentimes the people that own the businesses that sell these things, because vape stuff is not usually sold in convenience stores, um, their businesses goes up in smoke overnight and people end up unemployed. And uh, Michigan's ban got stayed in court <laughs> um, because people sued. Um, and I, be I believe the New York ban um, is uh, going to end. It was a temporary ban, it will end sometime in the future. Um, the CDC has discovered what those of us who have been vaping for a long time knew the whole time, and that is that it's not nicotine vape that is the problem. It's the THC cards and it's the illegal ones at that because there are in states where marijuana is legal and there are a not insignificant amount of states where that is so medically or recreationally. Um, the um, one of the mo most popular ways to consume THC is in small cartridges where the oil has been concentrated at almost 95 or more percent. The reason why these young people are suffering from it is because in these states where 
you have recreational marijuana, you have to be 21 to buy them. Obviously, if you're under 21 and you still want to consume weed in that way, you're going to go to the street. The problem with that is people will grow or buy their own flour, they'll distill it into oil. They were using this vitamin E acetate. So research has finally come out what the problem actually was. However, the, the fear-mongering that has occurred from the media on this matter has been truly frightening. Um, and especially as someone who I've been vaping for six years, it's 2019. I started vaping in 2013. Um, for six years, everyone is like, oh my goodness, you have to be careful. It will, you know, it will kill you. It's very dangerous. You know, it's worse than cigarettes, all this type of thing. Um, not so. We're now finding out. Finally, they're finally being honest about what the actual problem with vaping is. And that is important. It is, um, it, it's, I'm glad that it's finally coming out. I'm afraid it may be too little too late. The fact that it's kind of this one narrow thing in this one narrow set of conditions may um, be too little too late for those that are convinced that it's just a bad idea. And for those people whose businesses have been adversely affected by these knee-jerk bans, their businesses are dead in the water p potentially forever. Um, and people just may not be able to reopen um, if, uh, you know, if these bans don't get lifted in a, in a timely in a timely manner. Um, the I think there are people within the health community who have watched the popularity of vaping increase. The um, Juul, which is the bit, one of the big vaping brands, came under fire for its flavored cartridges um, and said that the flavors were, attract were attracting children, which honestly couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, and people were, oh, you know, they're, it's, you know, they must be targeting children. There are retailers that have dumped the product, and it's it's been this whole thing. Juul is owned by a major tobacco company, so just you should just know that. But it it's ubiquitousness and popularity with the younger generation has caused nicotine consumption rates to increase after they had already decreased. So, uh, for young people, rates of smoking were extremely low. It was in the single digits. It was well under ten percent. Of young people who smoked. Now, for those of us who are a bit older and were alive to remember the 90s, when m most people smoked still, smoking rates were still, and most, you know, a variety of young people smoked, you could smoke in public, there were ashtrays in malls, um, the restaurants were smoking and non-smoking, it was just everywhere. Um, there was this big drive for a lot of the 90s into the 2000s to get, you know, if young people never start, then they won't become smokers for their whole life and die of cardiovascular problems and lung disease and all this sort of thing. <clears throat> and, um, and, uh, the, the vaping has given, after all that work that was done with reducing the number of people smoking, vaping has helped people who've been smoking for a long time quit. It has also breathed new life into nicotine consumption for younger people, and younger people consuming nicotine increased by a lot thanks to vaping, and the popularity of the Juul product, which is, it's small, it's discreet, it's only about maybe 
two or three inches long. It's you know, kind of narrow, and um, the cartridge, the vape, the Jewel product and its cartridges were sold, unlike E Juice and Mods and Tanks, which is how I vape. Jewel and other such products were sold widely at convenience stores. You can get a Jewel practically anywhere. Um, and because of that, just because you were 18 didn't mean you didn't necessarily have access because just like back in the day when people used to sell cigarettes to minors, um, people would, you know, buy a parcel of jewel cartridges and sell them for, you know, a small markup. And it was a nice extra easy money sort of thing. And that's the thing with vaping is that the problem and the issue has been with the, um, illegality the illegally sold things rather than illegally sold things because I don't believe vitamin E acetate is actually in um, legally purchasable things. It's not in regular e-juice that I have been buying. There are only four ingredients. I've read them on the podcast before and vitamin E acetate is not one of them. And the CDC is finally catching up to what the rest of us have known for a while. So that is was an important thing that came down today. Um, also, interestingly enough, I was just watching a video from The View, um, before I got on, uh, Keanu Reeves is dating a new woman who is 46, um, he is 56, um, and of course the internet has just exploded because Keanu Reeves is one of the internet's most beloved people, and he has not dated in a very long time. His girlfriend, when he was... I think in his early 30s, um, died in a terrible car accident and also lost their child. And his sister died shortly thereafter. So he had major, major loss. And so he's been kind of single and running it solo for a while. And now he's out and about with this new woman. And there's, it's kind of been interesting with how the story has been about the ageism and sexism because she is, she's 46. She has gray hair. Um, people say she looks a lot like Helen Mirren, who's in her 70s, and all this sort of thing. And she seems nice and kind and down to earth. And I don't know if she was necessarily ready for all this scrutiny or to be a national entertainment news story. But here she is, and here we are. And um, it has been, it's been interesting that everyone is like, oh, and she's, you know, she's... He's dating some, right? He, he could be dating someone in their 20s, like Dennis Quaid, but no, he's dating someone, dare I say, old. And the whole idea that women only have value if they're young and fertile and attractive is so deeply ingrained in this culture, that the entire discussion about Mr. Reeves and his girlfriend is not about the, oh, what are they doing? And oh, he hasn't dated in so long. And, and are they going to be happy? And all this sort of thing. It has far more to do with the, oh my goodness, he didn't go for someone young and nubile and fertile. No, no. He went for someone, for someone older and, and close to his age and, you know, almost sort of age appropriate sort of thing. And, it's, you know, despite there still being a 10-year age gap. Um, it is kind of all very, um, I kind of, I find it kind of very sad. I feel, I feel bad for her. I feel sad for her. 
Um, because I imagine this is probably a level of scrutiny that she was not prepared for um, when she fell in love with Keanu Reeves. Um, but it is, I don't, I don't think this is, as a society, it is not healthy for us to focus this much on a woman's age or her looks just because she's dating a celebrity and the fact that a celebrity man like him could quote unquote do so much better and by better read younger, thinner, prettier, all this type of thing. If he's happy, then that's all the rest of us should really be concerned with. The fact that she's 46 and not super young really just shouldn't be a story. And we need some reform in our society on that matter. We really do. So, um, we have also this week, um, Facebook and Twitter are under fire for user data. So, Twitter has had a thing this week where um, they, Facebook, Twitter has had some issues with their Saudi sovereign fund investment. The Saudis have been long and big investors in Twitter. It came out this week that um, the Saudi government has operatives working at Twitter and those operatives have been stealing user data and using it to suppress dissidents, including possibly Jamal Khashoggi. Um, who you may recall was um, killed in a Turkish embassy by Saudi operatives, hacked up with a bone saw, and summarily disposed of. The, and not only does that expose a problem within Twitter in terms of security and in terms of the way intelligence operations companies might be taking advantage of places like Twitter, but also the fact that Twitter has enough user data that they can, that, that someone can go to work there, steal that data, and use it for nefarious purposes. And the fact that Twitter has not lifted a, not one finger or one thing to do anything about that is truly troubling. And the, I mean, obviously the greater story of that is what are they doing with our data as users of these platforms? And that also dovetails into Facebook and its use of data and political ads and targeting. So Twitter has said that they're not taking political ads for the 2020 election. They are begging off. Um, Facebook has not made that commitment, although some people think Facebook will be modifying its political advertising policy at least by Thanksgiving, which is in a few weeks. Um, and uh, that has, that the way in which Facebook and Twitter both have collected mass amounts of user data, that data has been bought and sold and continues to be bought and sold as we speak, and is also being used to um, target people unfairly, which posing huge national security threats, is really coming sort of to a head. There were documents leaked this week from Facebook that said um, they were considering trying to find new and exciting ways 
to sell and or use this data or restrict it to what advertisers wanted and that everything we thought Facebook was doing nefariously with data and everything Edward Snowden said they were doing nefariously with data was true. And that Facebook and Twitter truly are the wet dream of every intelligence officer because of the amount of data that is available um, potentially, and the amount of data that they collect. And they've been able to do this and create this business off the buying and selling of their customers' data with almost no regulation. I think the regulation piece is probably about to change, all things being considered. I think they're probably... that Europe has already started it with GPDR, um, um, the compliance of which has, I think, caused a lot of us a great deal of difficulty. Um, but, um, and, and I think that will also cause in the future, um, regulations here in the United States on how user data can be used, how users can be targeted and how all of these things are going to work together and how much money they're allowed to profit from the buying and selling of their customers data. It is... I find it personally morally reprehensible that they have built a business model off the buying and selling of data. That shows that whatever they do doesn't actually create that much value. And the way in which they have destroyed the advertising model of almost every content provider on the internet and have done it on the back of selling customer data just ratchets up the broken nature of the online content ecosystem. Now, Facebook is partially trying to fix this with its new news product. Facebook is launching a new news product, which I am working on being a part of through Rouge's Magazine, um, where there, the content providers will be paid for providing news to Facebook um, and, you know, have the have the advert part of the advertising dollars get back to the platform so that platforms can actually make money from their views on Facebook. I have said for a while, Facebook needs to do one of two things. They either need to give you back the eyeballs or they need to start paying you for your content. It looks like Facebook has chosen to pay for the content. I support it and I intend to at least try to attempt to take advantage of it in the future in my own business. Um, the Buying, selling, and security of user data is something that a lot of businesses have taken advantage of in the past several years. And I think the day for government regulation in this area is here. The reality is that data is incredibly valuable. That data is being sold and people make a lot of money of it. And we all have been freely offering it in exchange um, for the use of these platforms for years. And that has been something where no one has really ever kind of quite been sure how that all works. And now we are getting a peek into the world of how user data is being used, how user data is being manipulated, and how user data is being sold, and what exactly and in what volume it is being collected. And that is a problem that we're only starting to begin to solve. And that's something I think in the next Democratic primary debate should be a question. 
The only person who's actively talked about it is Elizabeth Warren, sort of, and her solution is to start breaking up social media companies, which isn't really going to solve the problem. Um, and I think we, I, it's long past time for a national conversation on the buying and selling of user data. And I hope that this week, now that we've had, we've learned more about how Twitter is being taken advantage of by, by foreign countries and literally becoming a national security threat and what Facebook is doing with user data that it's long past time to have that. So now that we've gone on that trail, we're going to have a campy chat about impeachment. Now, not much, not too much has happened on impeachment this week. There've been a couple major stories. Um, in the last couple weeks since I did this podcast last. The first major story is um, the impeachment process and the public hearings have been formalized. So the House voted to proceed with impeachment. It was an entirely partisan vote. Almost no Republicans voted um, to, <clears throat> to formalize the impeachment process. The nice thing about the formalization is with the new rules in place, the formally secret behind closed doors hearings will now become public. The transcripts of the closed door hearings have also started to become public and a lot of those have landed this week. Ambassador Sondland, who is former envoy to the Ukraine, has changed his testimony and verified that he too was pressured to create a quid pro quo situation between Trump and Ukraine for Zelensky. Um, in addition to that, John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, has reported he has other bombshell evidence um, pointing to quid pro quo with Ukraine as well. And in just kind of beyond, on top of that, um, President Zelensky, who was the president of Ukraine, was ready to announce on CNN, on Fareed Zakaria's show, that he was going to investigate um, the Bidens in order to get the military aid. And the only reason that that did not happen was because word of it leaked out. Um, and then the final kind of part of that that happened over the last uh, couple weeks, I'm looking for the last, the last story. Besides, Mick Mulvaney has gotten summoned to Congress to talk about his part. Um, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will also be testifying in regards to the impeachment proceedings and uh, to uh, cap it all off on top, um, President Trump lost in court again on his tax returns, which was not a part of impeachment, but those um, the tax returns um, and their release may eventually get to the impeachment committee to track the financing and funds that may have resulted um, in him committing obstruction of justice to protect his financial interests with Russia and or Ukraine. So, um, and there's been some other kind of minor legal wrangling in terms of what's gone on with Rudy Giuliani and how Giuliani has been deep into this Ukraine thing and the fact that Giuliani and Trump were running back channels with Ukraine outside of normal diplomatic channels. Um, and also doing the same thing with Turkey, and the fact that basically American foreign policy has been being run by a handful of people in the Oval Office with almost no consultation with the rest of the government. So, impeachment's really straightforward. The public hearings started on Wednesday. They'll proceed into next week, which means it's going to be a busy news day in terms of 
as the testimony comes out and we learn more about the Ukraine deal, what goes on, what happens, and who did what for who. I think it's a huge mistake that the Democrats are not pursuing more of the stuff in the Mueller report. Bob Mueller served up evidence for impeachment on the obstruction of justice and the Russian election interference. Um, over in the UK, Boris Johnson is trying to avoid the Russian interference aspect that was in Brexit and possibly in those elections while they're in the middle of a general election that will conclude on December 12th. We're not, gonna, we're not doing Brexit today, but um, there is there is kind of all these different moving pieces, and right now Democrats are only focused on Ukraine. 51% of the country supports impeachment. I imagine that will get far deeper as time goes on and as more and more evidence comes out to show that Donald Trump has been using the apparatus of the federal government for his own personal gain, whether it's fueling tankers at an airport in Ireland and having officers stay at his golf course or withholding congressionally authorized aid to get an investigation to take out Joe Biden, um, who's running for president, which would benefit his own candidacy. Donald Trump has been using the federal government for his own political gain. And that is where the impeachment focus is right now. I hope the Democrats will expand the, um, will expand the probe to include the stuff from the Mueller report because that that shows a clear pattern of behavior that o over time Trump has never blanched away from trying to get foreign nations to interfere in the election and trying to elicit help from outside powers and first it was Putin and Russia then it was Zelensky and Ukraine this is a consistent pattern of behavior with Trump and it's gone on and on and on and hopefully the extent of that will begin to come out now with these public hearings and hopefully with this probe underway they will keep investigating what is going on they will continue to follow the money because the finances of the whole thing are always what proves the you know, either proves it happened or give, or gives you a motive and sometimes both and that you know things will kind of proceed proceed forward now that the proceedings have been formalized and public hearings are underway things will move quite quickly we may be at a trial in the senate before iowa caucuses i think that's nancy pelosi's goal is to get this either done or wrapped up hopefully before um the iowa caucuses get on get underway which speaking of iowa caucuses is a great chance to transition into um 2020 so the big news that happened in the last couple of days and i the last episode i did almost all about the debate and we we did that there's not been too much 2020 news um but michael bloomberg who said that she wasn't going to run in march um, is now threatening to jump into the Democrat race because he registered in Alabama. Alabama's primary registration date ended today. And so um, it looks like Bloomberg may be throwing his hat in the ring. So we've lost some people like Beto O'Rourke who dropped out over the past couple weeks. Um, and Tim Ryan who also dropped out. And, um, and we might be getting um, Bloomberg we also added uh, Tom Steyer, so Bloomberg would be the second billionaire, so it would be 
Steyer and Bloomberg. Um, however, given the fact that to qualify for a Democrat debate, he needs to be able to poll at a certain percentage and he needs to be able to have a certain amount of donors, his whole shtick is that he's a self-funded candidate. He's not taking donations. I don't know how he's going to get on the debate stage without a certain amount of individual donations. So, and I don't know what what the why for Michael Bloomberg is in terms of his running, in terms of is he just so dissatisfied with Trump or does he just think that somehow in our society, billionaires are just underrepresented and what we need are more wealthy people in government <laughs> um, who can um, explain to us how we should or should not um, live our lives. So, um, that is kind of where we stand with 2020. The polling this week has been pretty interesting, um, in terms of kind of who is, who is, who is polling or who's, who's kind of ahead of Trump or not. I'm quickly looking for the, um, uh, the requisite news story I had in terms of the latest polling on uh, uh, on with Elizabeth Warren. Here it is. Found it. Usually I have my stories pre-pulled, but I had not pulled this one. But I have it here from the New York Times. Nate Cohn. In the battleground states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina, Trump is beating... Trump's kind of across the board. In Michigan, Trump versus Biden, he's even. Sanders wins by two points. Trump beats Warren by six points. In Pennsylvania, Biden is up by three. Sanders is up by one, even with Warren. Wisconsin, Biden's up by three. Sanders is up by two. And he's even with Warren. In Florida, Trump is... Uh, in, in Florida, Trump versus Biden. Biden is up by two. But in Florida, Trump beats both Sanders and Warren. Sanders by one, Warren by four. In Arizona, Biden beats Trump by five. In Arizona, Trump beats Sanders by one. But interestingly enough, in Arizona, Warren beats Trump by two. That's the only state where Warren beats Trump. Interestingly enough, in North Carolina, Trump takes it across the board. In Trump versus Biden in North Carolina, Trump is up by two. Versus Sanders, he's up by three. And Warren, he's up by three as well. The um, Those are the states that Trump has to win in order to, to win re-election. Um, and those, those are kind of the important swing states. And right now it looks like by and large, Biden would be, would do better than Sanders or Warren with the exception of North Carolina where Trump wins, um, by two versus Biden and by three versus Sanders and Warren. Michigan is also very close because they're dead even in Michigan. So in that scenario, if Biden could take Michigan and keep his lead in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, and Arizona, um, that would um, that would be favorable electoral math for Biden, which gives Joe Biden an edge on the electability front, and by proving that he would be the best candidate over more progressive candidates. However, on the 2020 front this week, we, besides losing better or work, which is very sad, we also had um, some kind of a big shakeup with Buttigieg 
Um, we're looking at Iowa polling as we're getting ready for the Iowa caucuses in uh, February. And um, Buttigieg is polling extremely well in Iowa. Um, he has two offices open. The ground game is strong. Um, of every, I mean, right now he's he's kind of Buttigieg is kind trying to claim it's a two-person race between him and Biden. The polling definitely disagrees with that because Buttigieg is still in in Iowa. He's doing very well, but nationally the polling the polling support for him just isn't there. The polling support nationally is Warren, Biden, and Sanders. Um, and then there's a big gap, and then Buttigieg, and then a small gap, and then Kamala Harris all this type of thing. Um, Buttigieg does, has very little support among black voters, and you don't get the Democrat presidential nomination if you don't have African-American voters. Um, and it's not too surprising that someone like Buttigieg would do really well in a white bread state like Iowa where there are very few, um, there are very few African-American voters. Um, the, there's kind of right now, and we're, we're getting close enough to where we can kind of start to see a picture where you could have a Buttigieg win in Iowa, a Warren win in New Hampshire, a Biden win in South Carolina, and then you're heading into Super Tuesday with a still competitive race. If one person wins all three, the race starts to coalesce around that one person pretty fast. However, if you have those states spread across different people, and you have other people seeking an entrance, like Julian Castro or Kamala Harris finishing second in those states, then you're heading into Super Tuesday with a lot of delegates still up for grabs, with a lot of um, energy still spread to left around, and a lot of money still left to spread around. And that is pretty significant, especially given a lot of candidates have built up some pretty significant war chests. Um, and the ability for them to continue through Super Tuesday in March when I think 23 states all vote for their primary on the same day, um, that potentiality is still very much there. Does Buttigieg have the money to make it if he doesn't win in Iowa? That's quite a different story, you know? Um, because he doesn't necessarily have the war chest that the others do. Biden can keep going for quite some time. Sanders can keep going for quite some time. Um, Warren might have some spending problems along the way. So coming out of these early primaries, there, there's going, he, in order for him to make his case, he's going to need a win. He's going to need some not insignificant energy and he's going to need to be able to raise the dollars to make it to Super Tuesday and do well on Super Tuesday and start picking up delegates. As a final note, I agree with Chuck Todd. I have a sneaky suspicion that with the primary this wide and this spread out that the, none of this is going to be decided until Milwaukee. We're not going to get a nice, neat, focused, single candidate out of the early states on Super Tuesday we're going to end up going to the Democrat convention in Milwaukee and enough people are going to have enough delegates that the back door, the back room negotiation will inevitably be fierce. So that's the Cameron Journal podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. You know, I love you for listening and reading and all the support that you all give me. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to tell your friends and I will see you next week at our regularly scheduled um, time and everything and hopefully no more breaks or hiatuses for a while. See you all soon.
That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>